can't hear what these suckers say. I'm out here doing everything you suckers can't. To a million from some bands trying to bust the bank. The way I'm coming, it ain't fair. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Break Some Dishes. John and I. Hi, John. Hey, Verda. How are you? Hi. Over here at uh, Break Some Dishes, besides breaking a lot of dishes, <laughs> we are... Making uh, a mess in the kitchen. Yeah. Speaking of kitchens. <laughs> besides making a mess in the kitchen, we like to talk to people. We like to talk to people in our industry of design and outside of our industry, to those that are disrupting the status quo, doing things differently, looking for solutions, particularly solutions through design that can help solve some of the problems that we're facing right now. Joey Roth, who we're going to be speaking to today, is no exception. He is an interesting guy. His passion is coffee. And you'd think, okay, what is a guy who makes pods for coffee machines doing on a Break Some Dishes podcast? We can't break those pods, you know? But but he's got a lot of interesting things to say. I'm super excited because he talks about friction. It's one of my favorite topics, good friction and bad friction. And the coffee experience is all about good friction. And it's a way to help save the planet, believe it or not. John, what do you think? Yeah, I'm really grateful that Joey's going to spend some time with us today. I can't wait to get into it. Joey Roth. Right, Joy Roth. Welcome to break some dishes. We're going to bust up some dishes with Joey today. We got Verda on as well. Hi, Verda. Hi, John. Hi, Joey. Welcome to break some dishes. Happy to have you on. So, Joey, I was just I was just saying, and I figured we should we should tell everybody. But we always have scientists and environmentalists and sustainability experts on our podcast. And as you know, one of the things Verda and I try to do is bring that scientific conversation into the interior design industry so people can find inspiration and motivation to make change from science. And today we've got a designer on, we have a creative on, who is doing some pretty cool things that impact our planet in a positive way. And so, Joey, I'm going to throw the microphone to you in a figurative form and let you tell us a little bit about yourself and and what you're doing these days. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so my name is Joey. Um, I've been designing uh, everyday products for a little over a decade now. I started my studio back in 2007. So yeah, wow. <laughs> Quite a bit over a decade, coming up on a decade and a half almost. But yeah, I've always, um, I've always been fascinated by everyday rituals and how objects can mediate and inspire and um, kind of enter into this conversation with the user to, to determine what is the meaning of these rituals, um, what is the actual nature of them, what do they mean in your daily life, and what are the opportunities for changing the rituals in a positive direction at scale. That's always, that's always been uh, sort of the focus of my work. So right now I'm working on a product in a company called Ozma which is based on this fundamentally new way to extract compounds, primarily from coffee, but it also works very well with tea and we're experimenting with some other things, um, using extremely low amount of energy with a very, very simple, physically industrial and engineering design. Um, and that's, uh, that's always sort of been a fascination, the, the vessels that are used to contain something that the user consumes. 
And that's primarily manifested itself in audio designs, which I, I think of speakers, which has been a major thing that I've worked on as vessels for the, uh, the music and the media that people are going to consume through them. And then also literal vessels. So like my first product was this teapot called the Sauropod, which was, you know, design wise, pretty progressive, but functionally just a teapot. Um, and I've gotten more and more interested in the the engineering and even, you know, the science side. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not a scientist. I'm barely an engineer, but it's it's getting more and more interesting as the projects I tackle and the questions I try to answer just demand a higher level of, of technical understanding and fluency. Well, and it's interesting too, that you're talking about understanding everyday rituals, right? And can we change that? And I, you think about an everyday ritual, there's probably nothing more resounding in everyday rituals than having your morning coffee. Absolutely. Right. So you think about the cumulative effect of coffee every day. And if part of that activity is, is, is bad, that just compounds itself. Right. Absolutely. Tell us about, um, Ozma. Yeah, for sure. Um, Ozma, a major motivation starting Ozma is, is what you're alluding to, which is pod coffee is immensely popular and the market for pods is growing at basically twice the rate that coffee overall is growing. And coffee overall is growing pretty substantially year over year. So we're talking like 8 to 10% year over year for pods, which is, you know, in the one sense, it's it's good because it's allowing that daily coffee ritual to be of a higher level of experience, multi-sensory experience, um, without actually expanding how much time it needs to take, which is always, when you want to change a ritual at scale, I think understanding time is a primary constraint that you need to design for is, is like the first step. So pods, I think, are popular and are growing because it's allowing this basically time compression of the the typical like espresso pull or even pour over experience um, into a very short controlled amount of time. But obviously the negative of that is that it produces an empty pot every time you make a cup of coffee. So I know Nestle has invested tremendously in a whole reverse logistics structure for getting their pods back from people who've used them and recycling them in some way. Keurig is experimenting, I know, with different materials. But the the issue with these companies, there's two things. They're almost like a victim of their own success in that they have such a wide install base right now of like people who have standard Keurig machines or standard Nestle machine, Nespresso machines that to radically change their pod would obsolete all of these machines that are already in the market, which would be a very difficult move for them to make from a business perspective. When, when I started Ozma, I realized, okay, pods have this bad rap you know, largely deserved because the the waste stream they create is is substantial. Compare it to like a typical pour over where you have a paper filter full of coffee, which is biodegradable in your backyard. You don't even need to bring it to a commercial landfill or compost in order to biodegrade. That's clearly better. Um, but pods have this appeal because of the that what I said before the compressing a very rich experience in a really controlled small amount of time that's just encapsulated and you know that's how long it's going to take you know what the outcome is going to be what i wanted to do with ozma is create a pod system that had that level of convenience and control and consistency but 
none of the negatives that pods have right now. So step one for that was how can we design a pod that's as biodegradable as a piece of unbleached filter paper with coffee inside of it, which is sort of the, the standard right now. Or if you're using an espresso machine, literally just a puck of coffee. Used coffee is wonderful in like a home compost or in a garden. It, it does nurture the soil that you're creating in a, in a really good way. So I wanted to think, all right, from not just the pod perspective, but the device itself and the overall experience, how do we create something where when somebody's done brewing a pod, they will be not incentivized, but the, the affordance will be, okay, open this and eject it into your home compost bin or into your garden and then watch as it biodegrades over time uh, to really connect you back to that process. So with Ozma, that was one of the main starting points. How do we create a system that allows the use of these biodegradable materials? And we actually, we landed on a material called bagasse, which is uh, waste fibers from the sugar extraction process. So it's, it's sugarcane fiber, basically. And working with our supplier, we're able to mold this sugarcane pulp into the shape of our pods. Let me see if I... Wait, so how you were designing speakers, ceramic speakers, you're designing... T- how did you get into a supplier that is going to be able to make a filter for you out of, what is it, sugar pulp? Yeah, sugarcane pulp. Uh, sugarcane sugar pulp. I mean, called baguette. Yeah. How did you? How did you make that connection? That's that's kind of the easy part, actually. There's is a, it? Yeah, the friction around meeting the right supplier to get your thing has just gone to like nearly zero now. I mean, compared to when I was starting out, when I would need to like go to a trade show or something, or ask around and get a referral, I literally went on this Slack group for hardware people in the Bay Area, and I asked. Can anyone suggest a molded paper pulp supplier that that is reliable and does quality work? And three out of 10 people, uh, you know, I got like seven, 10 responses. There were like seven different ones. And three all mentioned our supplier, Golden Arrow, who's down in Saratoga, California. And yeah, that was it. I gave them a call and uh, described the project. I mean, they're mostly this molded fiber technology is usually used for packaging design. So uh, any kind of place you would normally be using styrofoam, you can drop in a replacement made of this molded fiber pretty easily. And that's that's also a great use of it. I mean, styrofoam is terrible stuff. But right. for a food product and a consumable like this, this that was a new project for them. They hadn't made coffee pods uh, previously. So there was there was a process of making sure that the slurry they were developing for us was completely food safe. That was actually the easier part, making sure it was food safe because these are non-toxic materials, but making sure it wouldn't add any flavor to the coffee, that that took a little bit longer. And there was some R and D there. Because, you know, the to get the stuff to bind consistently, get it a texture, they do specific things. I mean, if you think of like Apple packaging when you get a new iPhone or some new thing from Apple, there's that very, very, very crisp paper it doesn't even look like pulp at that point that really crisp paper packaging that fits the shape of the phone perfectly that's the kind of work they normally do so our pods are essentially that material but from a a composition that's only sugarcane fiber without any of the binders they normally use and that allows the pod to not add any taste to the coffee or tea or whatever you're using yeah did you consider yourself an activist before you started down this path an activist. So my very first job in the design industry, and this was really like design industry adjacent. Um, I was a writer. Do you guys remember the blog tree hugger? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was that was huge back when I was starting in like 2006, 2005, 2006. My very first job when I was a senior in college was as a writer for this blog tree hugger. And I specifically sought that out because that was like my main motivation getting into design in the first place that I saw. I mean, again, this was like the first wave of all the green stuff in like 2005, 2006. So if you guys remember the like bamboo plywood was like this super exciting thing. And you had the light transmitting partitions that had like the jute fiber molded into it. I mean, I remember going to ICFF in 2005 and it was all this really now we would look at it and it would look like, you know, completely standard stuff. But, but back then it was very exciting using these kind of, um, different reeds and grasses and molding them into, you know, not load bearing, but definitely engineering grade materials. Um, I was just incredibly inspired by all of that. And that was, that was sort of the impetus for, starting down the path that I did. And yeah, my, my interest in materials and my focus on most well-known audio project, the ceramic speakers, that that started with a desire to make an easily repairable speaker set using materials that would just improve with age and that wouldn't look like something that you need to replace in a couple of years. So that's why I use porcelain for the body. And there's a, just a piece of natural cork on the back that connects the electronics to the driver and isolates them and everything. And I, I wanted to avoid the use of, you know, polymers and things like that. I've, I've evolved from there. And I think that actually material technology has evolved. I don't think just like polymer equals bad makes sense anymore, but there is definitely um, a strong activist mindset that that motivates the way I think about materials and beyond materials it's also like how how long will this object be valuable to somebody will it gain value the more that it's used or will it lose value the more that it's used what will be the motivation to replace it versus to fix it and I think that that's you know in terms of sustainability and the impact that releasing a mass-produced product has I think thinking through those like behavioral factors and emotional connection factors to the, the object can be just as important as the materials. Because really what, what you want to achieve is a positive change in these like ritualistic behaviors. And to do that, I think you have to create products and experiences that draw somebody in that direction. And there's a lot that a designer can do in order to nudge, nudge that in the right way. Yeah, I'm super... I'm super interested in this idea of ritual and opportunities for changing ritual. And I just, while you were talking about Keurig and the others that have gained so much popularity so quickly, it's really a shame that our society rewards new technology like this that creates so much waste and allows for these types of companies to become so successful. But, and this is a tough question, I'm sorry, but in some ways I feel like you're not exactly changing the ritual you're just substituting a pod for a pod mm-hmm. that's more sustainable mm-hmm. how do you would agree you, or how would you how do you see yourself actually changing this ritual of using these no, pods that's, that are that's a great question that's a really good question i think what you're you're asking if i'm understanding is like you know there you have these sort of like photo shoots of like putting cut carrots into a mcdonald's fry package and will that um make kids want to eat carrots more because you're basically encapsulating something positive into something that's less positive. I think there is an aspect of that where, yeah, I'm not challenging at the face of it, 
the the daily pod ritual because that is immensely popular and it is growing. People clearly want coffee in this form. I don't believe that pods, just the fact that they are pods, means that they're bad. I think that there's two negatives with pods right now. The primary negative is the waste room that it creates and the inability to really deal with plastic and especially aluminum pods. Even with a robust reverse logistics program, you're still burning energy moving these pods back and forth. I mean, really to have that, that underlined the whole design of Osmo. You need to be able to get rid of the pod at the point where the user drank it and they need to be able to just dump it anywhere and it will not cause harm. But beyond that, so yeah, on the face of it, you could use Osmo the way that you use an espresso and Keurig without really changing your own approach to it. But the other side of Osmo, and actually the reason we've been able to engage the enthusiast coffee community. By enthusiast coffee community, by the way, I just mean enthusiast means somebody for whom coffee occupies a larger than normal mind share and possibly larger than normal time share of, of just their daily every day. So I'm not talking about coffee professionals necessarily. I'm talking about people who enjoy coffee and would consider it a hobby and maybe their, their group of eight friends would ask them about coffee stuff first. Like they know that this is the coffee person, even if they, you know, they work as like a product manager or something somewhere else. The coffee is a hobby. This group has been completely closed off to Nespresso and Keurig pods. Uh, it's basically anathema to everything they, all the values they hold about coffee. Um, right, right. The taste, the level yeah. of control, everything. Because it's just like, um, yeah, it's like audiophiles and like the early MP3 players. It was just a total mismatch of values, of approach to what is it to listen to music? Why do I sit down to listen to music? It's like that right now with pods and, and the specialty community. So, um, yeah, there's an art, there's like an artisanal craftsmanship that I think a lot of people put into their coffee ritual in the morning and and you're definitely taking that away. I almost think it goes back to, so I'm a workplace designer and John and I are both in this, in this industry, construction design industry and looking outside our industry to people like you for interesting innovation. It reminds me of this article I wrote uh, a little while back is called friction in the workplace that we're making our workplace too easy to like too frictionless. Like there's not enough. <laughs> it was not a popular idea, this idea of making work yeah. hard, but it really, I think it really connects to our conversation here because you're talking about the culture of convenience and that this is why Nespresso and Keurig, why these companies have gained so much popularity yeah. and the artisanal coffee makers. I think, what they're all about is slowing things down about bringing friction, bringing a little bit of a challenge to your morning routine. And the whole idea of doing that is that it makes you appreciate it more. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that my approach to this, and this is beyond Osmond, beyond just coffee, but I think that the designer's role is often as a filter or as a curator, you basically want to curate friction. So there's good friction, there's bad friction. You want to remove, as as this friction curator, you want to remove the bad friction. So the stuff that could be frustrating, the stuff that has a very steep learning curve with not a ton of reward at the end, or the stuff that's just tedious. You know, the cleanup, the... um, I'm thinking about the what the pour over process is like. The fact that you create this sort of tower, and I have three young kids, so I always need to really keep this far away from them, or else if they nudge it or jostle the table or something, my whole pour over tower can like come crashing <laughs> times, and with hot water and grounds everywhere. So there's definitely 
bad friction around the manual coffee brewing process. There's also tremendously good friction, which is what gives it its meaning and gives it its its beauty and its value, which is like, you know, grinding the beans, I think is is tremendously pleasurable, but it, it is friction, literally. Not to mix metaphors too much. You're using friction to grind the beans, but it's also if you're pre-ground <laughs> coffee, that's a step removed and it's going right. to be a faster, less friction process. But I would say you lose something in that case. So it's, it really is, as a designer, you are this filter slash curator of what, what do you want to suppress? Like what is, what, what do you consider annoying friction to suppress? And I'd say with the goal of bringing out the good friction and sharper relief, like allow those good moments, allow those moments of connection and of full engagement with this process to, to rise to the surface of experience because you've gotten rid of a lot of the annoying parts of it or a lot of the points of frustration. So I think that, you know, applied to like a workplace design, I think if you just, I don't know, I haven't read your article. It sounds really interesting, but basically what I'm guessing is if you just remove all friction from the workplace, uh, I'm thinking of like just one of those completely open offices. It could very much be that nobody gets any work done because it's so easy to talk to everybody and you need to create these sort of gating barriers or buffers so that you can actually have the true experience you're meant to have uh, in the workplace. And I'd say the same thing with coffee. So Nespresso and Keurig, both of these machines are just complete black boxes, literally. Like you put the pod in, you press a button and coffee comes out of a spout. You have no <laughs> sense as the user what's going on right. in this thing. Is my coffee no happening through different tubes? Is it like what's happening here? You have a pod right. which you can't see or smell or have any interaction with what's inside of it. It's just a label. You put it inside of a thing and, and coffee comes out. Yeah. So there is this blind spot, which is the coffee brewing process, which I think is an over suppression of friction in both of those design cases. So but, a, yeah, please. Yeah. I mean, clearly there's a huge population out there that doesn't want the experience. They don't want to have that artisanal crafted moment. This is where I get really upset because I think that everybody wants that. I think everybody wants that moment of full engagement. It's just about delivering it in an accessible way. I think, I mean, this is, this is like with any sort of pursuit or uh, practice or anything where there is an expert community and like a mass community. I think that the values and the tastes that the expert community develops are in general, widely, widely attractive. It's just about how accessible are they. And uh, so, yeah. Is convenience a part of this consumer package that we're, this bill of goods that we're sold? Well, like, is convenience a, a real thing or are we just convinced that we want convenience? I think that convenience allows a given ritual to fit into more lifestyles, it just allows it to be more compatible. Usually convenience is a trade-off between the authenticity or the intensity of the experience. Authenticity is a weird word. The the intensity of the experience. How fully engaged can you be in this moment with the thing that you're doing? Convenience, to make it more convenient, you usually have to take something away from that that level of engagement. I'm I'm obsessed with opportunities and and products and rituals. That is not a trade-off. By design, that's not a trade-off. And that's exactly what, what Ozma is. It's, it's a clear cup and it's a pod where the, there's just a paper filter over it and you can smell the coffee and you can see the coffee in the pod. 
Mm. You put it in, you put your own water into it and you press go. And then you actually see the water going into the pod, circulating through and turning the water that's in the cup into coffee. And the aroma, I mean, it's a completely open chamber. So the aroma is going to be even more intense than you would get from a pour over or an espresso or one of the more traditional coffee processes. But it's not any more difficult and it's not any more time consuming than what you do with an espresso or a Keurig. And the reason I think it's important to hit both of those, how can you both, how can you make something very intense and fully engaging and connect the, the user of the process to what's actually happening in the process while making it as convenient as possible? Basically suppressing the negative friction and boosting the positive friction as much as possible. Those are the products and the designs I think that really have like potential world-changing impact. Uh, because yeah. they both are can spread because of the accessibility, but then what is being spread can be very positive and very different than what's out there. That's a great explanation of your pod system and how it bridges that gap. Because John, I do think that we've gone too far down the culture of convenience and and we've lost the thing is we don't know what we've lost by doing that. And that's, that's the problem. And I think of the slow food movement, growing your own food, knitting your own clothes, like the satisfaction yeah. and the connection to nature, to humanity by slowing down and doing some of these things yourself. But yeah, we've all been convinced that we need yeah, to we do even more. Try to, we even try to make consuming more convenient, right? Yeah. Now we just can do it from our living room on a computer and get it in a day. Right. So, right. yeah. Right. So I think you're onto something, just finding that middle ground where you're still providing the convenience, but you're bringing back some of that ritual. I think it's great. Yeah. Well, I think that, that I mean, that's really the, the opportunity where my goal with Ozma is to basically never make this a mass market product. Never change the product so that it fits into what's currently the mass market culture of coffee. I want to make it as accessible as possible so that I'm basically expanding the boundaries of specialty coffee to include more and more people. And that's, that's the distinction. I, I see this as a vehicle by which more and more and more people can have a more sustainable, but also much more engaging and richer uh, daily coffee ritual. And so both the, the depth of the experience and, and what we're able to do with coffee, the sort of quantum leap beyond any brew process that exists right now, but then combined with that, that accessibility and the way that it is a pod system on the surface, um, that's what's going to allow it to have the impact that I, yeah. that I think it needs. So do you think, and I have to apologize because I, I called your speakers, I said they were made out of ceramic, but they're porcelain. Right, they're porcelain. Porcelain so, is a type of ceramic. I think it's like a square. And a oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, then I don't need to apologize. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it seems like you're very intentional with your material selection. And I'm wondering, do you think that more and more industrial designers today of your generation are more intentional, are more thoughtful with their material selection? Because when I look at your work, you're designing objects that are pretty to sit on a desk that they're pretty you don't hide them and so the intent there is they're not going to find their way into a landfill anytime soon but you're also very intentional in the materials that you choose that they age well that they they become classic Mm. by their 
you know, characteristics. Is that something you think is more of a design trend? Do you think you're unique in that? I mean, I don't, definitely not now. Definitely not now, which is great to see. Um, I think that when I was starting it, yeah, there weren't a lot of people doing like electronics using these sort of patina patina developing materials. And that's that's kind of how I think of the material selection where when I think of a patina, a patina, you know, literally is like uh, leather or like copper can develop a, a physical patina, which is very beautiful. But it's basically, does the material change based on how you use it? And is that change desirable? And that's that's really like the, the number one question when I ask myself, um, will somebody want to keep this or will their kids want it when they're done with it? Or will it, you know, be valuable if they put it on eBay? That kind of materials that are both expressive about what's been done with them, but in a, in a good way. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, I think that now it's, you know, there's a ton of progress in, in just material science. So I think that there's definitely more attention being paid to either is a long lasting object or device that is made from these materials that will look better with age, or it's made of materials that, you know, the designer is very intentional about it being not a long-term valuable device. Uh, so the materials are either biodegradable or designed to be separated and, and easily recycled. But no, I think that, you know, then you have this other side of like, uh, the whole Amazon basics line, which is literally, you know, derived very closely from other products that are being sold on Amazon and they kind of undercut those products. I think that there is still this, this mismatch between like, what is the, the least expensive way to make something and what, what is the best way to make something? And I don't know what will really close that window. I think that part of it is changing still evolving like consumer expectations. And those have evolved tremendously over the time that I've been designing, but I think that there's still a lot of room to go there. And I think that, that technology has another big role to play where can, can materials be developed that are really inexpensive, like competitive with the cheapest thermoplastics right now, but um, are very easily broken down or reused or, you know, I think that, that long lasting is less impactful making things out of materials that are long lasting is less impactful than developing materials that um don't last a long time by design that break down very easily or are very easily recycled or reclaimed because a lot of products i mean especially now with how quickly certain technologies are advancing a phone is never going to become an heirloom object it just won't i mean there have been attempts to do that and to make it out of materials that have that or some cases phone cases are made out of like nice kind of heirlooming materials but that technology just evolves too quickly. Phones need to be considered disposable or reclaimable or something like that. So the other problem with that is that we don't have a good infrastructure or even system for repair right. of, of anything. Right. I was just reading somebody started a this repair cafe in a, in a library, this idea that you could bring in a broken object like I have a broken, you know, those heavy duty mixers. I dropped it in the lever, the lever yeah. kind of got wedged. Yeah. So now I can't to use it. I have to hold the button cause it won't, it won't stay on its own and it would be the right. easiest repair in the world. But I'm sitting here contemplating throwing away a 
20 pound machine just because the lever yeah. is a little dented. Totally. It's crazy. Right. Yeah. Repair is this, you know, I think the best, the best approach to repair. I mean, here's the thing, like there has to be a level of demand for that. And I think that we, you know, the mass market has been trained to just buy a new thing and to get rid of the, yeah. thing, which is not great. So I love, there's this technique in Japan of if, if you drop a, literally break a dish or drop a bowl or something, you can actually repair it using like a gold enamel more or less. I, I'll find some images of it, but basically. Yeah, it's called Kintsuge. Yes, yes, exactly. Ah, Verda, very impressive. Very, yeah, yeah, totally it. That is totally it. You know where I'm going with this. Uh, Basically, the repair, the object having been used and been repaired is now more valuable and more meaningful, more beautiful than it was when it was new. And I think that the the path to making repair um, a really viable thing that a lot of people want to participate in and that has this supply community of like, you know, many repair cafes, and this is something that's in demand would be to somehow make it a mark of pride or a mark of like exclusivity or something that you got your object repaired by this place. Like if you brought your mixer in there, maybe there's some special, you know, little plaque or something they could, they could attach to it after the repair is done that says like when it was repaired, who did it. And it would be like this cool thing. And if like some professional chefs start having that on their equipment, It'll imply that like you really know what you're doing. You use this. Maybe the repair can involve a little bit of an upgrade, like putting in a slightly more powerful motor or some other mode. But I think that um, like living with your objects or living with your tools, the way you live with people is is really valuable. And that's how people have lived with their objects and tools throughout most of human history. It's it's recently I, yeah. that we have the ability to just just buy something new and throw out the old thing. I love it. I think that's where we need to go next. I think that's the ritual that we need to bring back is caring and treasuring our, our yeah, things. Totally. Yeah. And actually with, you know, with living spaces, I think that it's, it's a little bit more widespread people having this approach. Obviously if like you're having problems with your gutters, you're not going to move to a new place unless it's like catastrophic. But usually, I mean, people are used to fixing or getting somebody to fix stuff around the house. Um, but for objects, and it used to be that way for objects. And I think for yeah. objects, it's just the, the default is replacement right now. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, my father-in-law is a, uh, a builder, an engineer, a, a craftsman, and he doesn't throw away anything. Mm. Because he never knows if he'll need it to fix something else, right? So Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, you go into his little workshop and, you know, balls of twine, he doesn't throw that away. Mm -hmm. Wire, wraps it carefully. Yeah, there's, it almost, it's almost like it skipped a generation, right? Like we did fall into this generation of if it's broken, it's better just to throw it away. And now we're evolving into, I think, a generation that's being a little bit more thoughtful about it and saying, hey, but how cool would it be if, you know, we did have this cultural transformation where something that looks a little battle scarred, battle worn, a little beat up is actually more attractive because it does show us that it's appreciated. And, yeah. You know. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, you know, you see this with fashion a lot too. The cl- classic is like pre-distressed jeans, right? That's like uh, <laughs> battle scar. Exactly what you're saying. But, <laughs> you know, when I was kind of starting out, one of my best friends started this blue jeans store that the whole thing was just importing these, um, 
I thought they were super uncomfortable, but he was really into them. There's a whole community of these like very stiff, heavy Japanese made jeans that were like, you know, $300 jeans. Oh yeah. Especially yeah. Like indigo dye. And it was made on a special loom from the fifties that this guy had bought from some old Levi's auction or something. Um, but the whole point of these jeans is that you sort of wear them and you actually, they're so thick and so, um, you know, the materiality is just very clear. You can see like the, the weave on them and everything. And as you wear them, they just change and, and develop these really beautiful distress lines and, and a patina and everything. Um, so I, I think there's, there's definitely already a precedent for this, this mode of interacting with objects. I think that it needs to be. So right now, I think repairing objects is very much in the mental space of like frugality. And like you repair something if you can't afford the new one which is not good. I mean, you have to, you have, it has to have yeah. this exactly what you were saying. Yeah. Basically the sort of not bragging rights, but, but a positive, it's not just that you're trying to save money. It's that this is actually a, a better object now that I've used it. Yeah. Compared it. Well, and I think it's evolving into, it's a sustainable action now too. Like Verda's example, she didn't want that to wind up in a landfill. Right. And so I think that's what's happening too. People are saying, I'm not going to dump this in a landfill. It's still, I can repurpose it yeah, or I can reuse it or and I can so upcycle that is it. how products are made. I mean, you know, when you're talking about your father-in-law, there was a period of time where your blender and your dishwasher and your washing machine and like a ton of household appliances maybe use the same little motor and you could swap them from thing to thing. They had Phillips head screws or hex screws. You could disassemble it put the motor in, understand how it goes. The way products are made and designed, I mean, fasteners are expensive. So if you can eliminate fasteners from an assembly, you will, even if that means using some weird adhesive that a user will basically destroy the thing trying to open. Products is a whole other realm. I mean, I couldn't, I can't imagine what a phone that would be user repairable would look like. I'm sure there are some really cool concepts if I go on Behance or something and look around. But, you know, I think that there's, as the sort of, products and behaviors to be designed for get more and more specific and just sort of more and more miniaturized keeping things repairable and this is both like hardware and software now like i when i got my first computer i could open and and play with the code in every program that i had now that would be yeah. crazy like i i couldn't open like you know the squadcast source code, if I looked at it, it would be gibberish to me. There's, I couldn't modify what we're doing right now or anything like that. I'm sure there are people who can, but then that's what you do. You're a specialized, you know, video conferencing oriented software engineer. So I think that this sort of like, as things spread out and, and there's just more and more categories, and more and more complexity, keeping things repairable is going to be a challenge. But like you were saying, like the little, the, the cat, the repair cafe, and I love that concept that opens up this lane for a, a repair profession and a repair community. Like maybe there is somebody who's just specialized in taking the hood off of like a, a piece, you know, the new headphones or something yep. and know exactly how to use those and how to repair. And if they can get support from the companies, the way that like app developers have support from Apple to get stuff on the app store. Um, I think that could be tremendous. Well, that's you yeah. need the manufacturers getting involved and making it more being a part of that. Yeah. Making it more about providing a service. Like mm -hmm. Philips now is talking about, they sell light versus, versus selling light bulbs so that you mm. 
part of that process. I think that's that's right. a challenge for manufacturers. Yeah. So we're coming up on the hour. I I want to hear. I, I I love this conversation. This idea of changing our rituals and repair cafes and the mental space of frugality. All these all these great things we've talked about. Now I'd love to hear what if you've got something on the boards. Yeah, yeah. So Ozma, Ozma is definitely my main focus right now. Um, but we're actually we're working on a version for cafes, which is super exciting. Like basically the same technology, but in a format, a countertop format that would allow really high throughput uh, use in in coffee shops. Because I think that there's, I'm seeing that there's going to be this little, like renaissance in real life retail experiences like talking about people going to a coffee shop going to grab a bite to eat going to a bar um i think that post pandemic you know to survive in the pandemic there's been such a surge in innovation around how food and beverage and and just really rethinking stepping back and rethinking like what is the thing people are going to a cafe to have is it a cup of coffee or is it like you said philip saying that we sell light we don't sell light bulbs is it, is it the cafe experience? And that cafe experience is much far beyond just like the thing in your, in your cup that you're drinking. So I think that that's going to be a really, really, really exciting space. I, I don't think it's overstating it to say it's tragic, like the effect that the pandemic has had on a lot of small restaurants and cafes and kind of like decimating these, these cultures in, in some of like the cities that I love the most, um, like a bunch of places that I love in New York have closed in San Francisco and Portland because yeah. they, they haven't been able to, do the business that's necessary without having a physical space. But, but I think it has made us look at our habits. Exactly. Very, very exactly. closely. And I think that that's, I think that that's going to, yeah, that stepping back and really like reconsidering all of it, I think is going to lead to a very exciting renaissance in that area. So yeah, we're working on the cafe version, which I'm actually going down to San Jose today to look at the prototype and to see how that's going. And then I'm also, I'm still doing a lot of audio stuff. I think that, um, yeah, audio is always going to be, something that I'm obsessed with. And what's cool about speakers is you, you like physically can't create a perfect speaker. Like you can create a perfect amplifier because that's just electrical engineering. You can create a zero distortion. Yeah. Like using digital amplifier circuits, you can make a quote unquote perfect amplifier, but because speakers are literally a physical transducer of an electrical signal to create that agitation in the air molecules. And then in your ears, there is, there's so much art to it that has to combine with the science that you're never just like, you're never going to have a perfect piece of artwork. You're never going to have a perfect speaker system. It's always going to be a series of intentions and trade-offs and, and that kind of design project is, is just um, always going to be irresistible. So yeah, I'm, I'm continuing to work on that, but Osma <laughs> and like where Osma can go is the main thing right now. Yeah. More friction. I think I love, I love your position on friction as well. So I'm local. I'm going to, you need to let me know when your shop, your coffee shop. Oh, really? open. Yeah. I'm in the Bay area. So I'd love oh, to okay. stop by and check it out. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That would be awesome to have you back. And John's uh, been talking about a road trip, so maybe he can come out to California too and check out your God, shop. Yeah, I need to. Soon. I need to. <laughs> San Francisco's not too far for a good cup of coffee. Let's take the trip. <laughs> no, well, San Jose. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Or San Jose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, no, you guys would be interested in this because the whole cafe concept, so it's basically having a to-go cup 
that integrates the pod more or less. So the whole cup is compostable. You have the material separated from the liquid, but the material that was just used to brew your coffee or your tea or whatever is still in the cup and you can see it and, and experience it. But then the nice thing is the cafe can be so small and so simple because the customers are taking away everything. And they're just able to chuck it into a compost bin. There's no waste stream created by the cafe itself. Customers are given it and it's part of the packaging design, the material that would be waste. So yeah, exciting, exciting stuff. That's very exciting. Well, thanks, Joey. Yeah. Yeah. This is super fun. All right, John, another episode done. Check. Mm. Yes. I enjoyed that one. It was fun talking to a product designer I like you know? Joey, and I like that you challenged him a little bit. You kind of, you know, you gave him a poke, Verda. Yeah, and I, I, I liked going down the the friction road. I love talking about friction, and he he took that bait and had some really great things to <laughs> say about good friction and bad friction. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so next week, oh I was my a little god. Skeptical. Yeah, I was a little skeptical. It's like, what is? Why are who we talking to guy? a guy from Aspen who runs a ski resort? Yeah. But John, why don't you tell oh, us? Oh man, <laughs> so I've known Auden Schendler for a long time. Auden is um, a senior vice president of sustainability for Aspen Ski Company, and he is just a really cool guy um, who has been fighting the climate change battle for a very, very long time and forcing a major resort to change its ways to preserve the environment that it basically makes money on. And um, not to give away the, you know, we don't want to give away the, the episode, but Auden um, really challenges corporate America to stop making consumers feel like they're making the wrong decision and they're not properly recycling. And he's throwing it back um, at corporate America saying, stop making um, plastic water bottles, stop making water detergent that comes in big plastic bottles, stop making fuel chugging automobiles, right? Forcing us to buy stuff that we don't really want to buy, but we just don't have a choice. So anyway, Auden is just a great guy and we have a great time talking with him. So tune in the next episode, please, and listen to our conversation with Mr. Auden. Hey,